It's Palm Sunday, so we're entering into Holy Week, and I wanted to start uh, this morning by just sharing uh, some interesting answering machine uh, messages that I've come across. Uh, The first one goes like this, hello, uh, you're talking to a machine, Uh, my owner's carpets, windows and gutters are already clean. My owners already give to charity and they're already insured. If you're still with me, leave your name and number and they'll get back to you. Uh, Here's another one. Hi, this is John. Uh, If you're the phone company, I already sent the money. Uh, If you're my parents, please send money. (laughs) If you're my bank, uh, you didn't lend me enough money. Uh, If you're my friends, you owe me money. And if you're a female, don't worry, I have lots of money. Uh, and here's, here's one last one. Hi, I'm probably home. I'm just avoiding someone I don't like. Leave me a message, and if I don't call back, it's you. <laughs> uh, now, now, there's a common thread in all of those uh, messages, and, and that is that they've already decided, they're basically saying, I've already decided what to do with certain people. Uh, if you're selling something, if I owe you some. Thing. If you're someone that I don't like, then don't expect me to call you back. However, if you are someone that I like or someone that I need, then you can expect me to uh, call you back. Uh, just like everyone here this morning who uh, has someone who calls them, they had to come up to an answer uh, w- with an answer to this question. What am I going to do with this person who is calling me? And actually, that's kind of similar to the question that Pontius Pilate asks in our reading this morning, Matthew chapter 27, verse 22, Pilate said to the crowd, what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? What what am I going to do with this person who is trying to call me? And that's an answer that we need to answer ourselves. Every one of us here this morning, what am I going to do with this person who is trying to call me? Uh, you'll see in the story, and I hope you'll uh, keep Matthew 27 in front of you. We're going to look at the second half of the reading from from verse 11, and and you'll see that that the crowds um, made up their mind about what to do with Jesus. Famously, verse 22, let him be crucified. Then again in verse 23, let him be crucified. If you go down to verse 25, the people as a whole, everyone is included here, answered, his blood be on us and on our children. His blood be upon us. Now, I wonder if in the story you caught up on a really sharp contrast between two characters in the story because Pilate, on the one hand, in the story, is doing everything that he can to avoid responsibility for Jesus' death because he thinks that Jesus is innocent. And then contrast that with the crowd in the story who are willing to take on full responsibility for Jesus' death, presumably because they think He's guilty of a vast contrast between these two characters. And so as the crowd says, his blood be upon us and on our children, this is what you call raising the stakes. This is what you call going all in, banking everything on Jesus being guilty. His blood be on us and on our children. Now, these were good Jews, and, and, and they knew their Old Testament. And the Old Testament was very clear about the shedding of innocent blood. So, for example, uh, Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. In other words, if the crowd has got this wrong, 
They're doing something that the Lord detests. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, God tells the Israelites what to do when an innocent person has been murdered, in case an innocent person is murdered. And in verse 12, it says, The killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood. Uh, this was so um, critical for the um, people of God that, that they even had this scenario that if someone was murdered um, innocently uh, and nobody knew the cause, nobody knew who did the murder, then um, the, the nearest town to where the murder occurred had to take responsibility. Uh, the elders of the nearest city had to come to the crime scene and it says they had to wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley and they shall declare, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement, the heifer, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man." And then the promise, and the bloodshed will be atoned for, so you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood. So what in earth was the crowd thinking, saying his blood be upon us and on our children? Well, they must have been thinking that he wasn't innocent, right? They must have been thinking that he was guilty. But as we've already said, Pilate came to a vastly different conclusion about this character, the Lord Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 22, he says, I have found in Jesus no ground for the death penalty. He actually says it multiple times. And then in our reading this morning, even his wife has a dream about him. And she says, have nothing to do with that innocent man. She's talking about Jesus. But of course, Pilate was a pagan. Pilate was the enemy. Pilate was a Gentile. And so what did he know? Who cares what he thinks? He's a pagan. He's working for the enemy. He's a Gentile. Who cares what Pilate thinks, especially compared to the chief priests, uh, the leaders and the spiritual leaders and the elders? Well, he was a consummate politician, Pontius Pilate, and like any uh, politician, he uh, wanted to avoid having to come down on one or other side of the fence, knowing that he was an innocent man. He, He found a way to pass the buck. Verse 15, now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Maybe with his fingers crossed behind his back. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah. Now, now what's this? What's going on here? This is what you call passing the buck. Uh, This is what you call sitting on the fence. Pilate knew very well that Jesus was innocent. We're even told in this story he knew very well that the crowd was jealous of his popularity. And he knew for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Barabbas Barabbas was guilty. Now, what was his job, Pontius Pilate? 
It was his job to judge. If there was anything that he was supposed to do, it was to make a judgment, to come to a decision. Even he said it himself, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? It was his job to judge. It's interesting in this story because on the surface, it looks like Jesus is the one on trial. But actually, Jesus is the only one in this story who's not on trial. Jesus is the only one in this story who's innocent. Pilate is on trial. And yet he tries to pass the buck on to the crowd. But in verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. So he passes the buck on to the crowd to make a decision. And now they're in a position where they have to pick a team and they have to come down one side or another. But look at the equation. There's pagan Pilate, who was a Gentile, who was a Roman occupier on that team, on one hand. Or on the other hand, there were the pious priests, their religious leaders and authorities. Pilate was saying he was guilty and the, and the priests were saying, uh, sorry, Pilate was saying he was innocent and the priest was saying that Jesus was guilty. They had to pick a team and, and it's kind of obvious which way they would lean, isn't it? If the priests were saying that Jesus was guilty, I mean, who am I to question the, the, the religious leaders and the authorities? Uh, if they say that he's guilty, he must be guilty. And, and therefore, it would be an honour for us to be counted among those who called for Jesus' death, the death of this guilty man. It, it would be an honour for the blood of a blasphemer to be on our hands. That is, of course, if he's guilty. That is, of course, if he's not God. But he was God. And we're told in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, before Jesus was born, the angel declared Jesus would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who flung stars into space, the one about whom if he lost attention for one second, all this would evaporate. Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and that's Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. Even the Apostle Paul, Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, Jesus was God. Jesus was innocent. Jesus hadn't blasphemed, which means that the Jews had put an innocent man, the innocent man, to death. That's a sobering thought because now they are guilty of shedding innocent blood. It's interesting, actually, because one of the first sermons that was ever preached after the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead, the main point of the sermon was this, you are guilty, Israel, of shedding innocent blood. It was given by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. That's what God has done with him. What did you do? 
You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate. These are the religious leaders, the one who were, were ones who were waiting for the Messiah. Before, though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. Later on, the chief priests and the Sadducees, they were so upset by what these guys were saying and so angry that they actually threatened them. In Acts chapter 5, they said to Peter and the apostles, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, they were guilty, weren't they? Hadn't they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children? Isn't that exactly what they asked for? They asked to be made guilty of Jesus' blood. His blood be upon us. Innocent blood. It's interesting, actually, because in the Old Testament, innocent blood was the only kind that brought cleansing and forgiveness. So Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So what had all those bulls and sheep and cattle done that was worthy of death? Nothing. They were completely innocent. In, in fact, if these animals had any flaw or any defect or any imperfection, if, if the sacrifice that they brought was injured or blind or maimed, guess what? They couldn't offer it. It, it, it would be detestable in the sight of God. And so there could be no cleansing, there could be no forgiveness unless the sacrifice was blameless and innocent. And so what does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18? For you know that it was not with things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We're told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ has freed us from our sins by his blood. At 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Actually, every week we basically gather around the Lord's table and we quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
Now, all this talk about um, atonement and, and blood and, and guilt and shame, it, it sounds quite primitive, but, but actually it, it's quite a modern problem as well. Uh, you've heard the joke about saying that going to see the psychologist is getting uh, confession without absolution. Have you heard that one? Uh, confession without absolution. But, but they can't absolve anyone of, of their sins. Well, this is a modern problem. Uh, Cosmo Kramer, you, you watch Seinfeld, anyone? Anyone into Seinfeld? Uh, uh, Cosmo Kramer is uh, one of the main characters in that. His, his real name uh, is Michael Richards. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, he was, he was racked by a guilty conscience. Uh, he was longing for forgiveness. Uh, during uh, at one of his comedy um, performances, he flew into a racist rant. Uh, he lost his temper in 2006 because he was being taunted in the audience by an African-American man uh, during the act. Here's what the Washington Post wrote after the incident. Richards, 57 appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman last night to say he was sorry about his tirade at the Laugh Factory in Hollywood during a stand-up performance. I lost my temper on stage, he said, adding, I said some pretty nasty things to some Afro-Americans. You know, I'm really busted up over this, and I'm very, very sorry. Not long after, footage of the outburst made its way onto the internet, prompting the comic actor's response. The clip shows Richards interrupting his monologue on stage and yelling shut up at a patron who apparently had been heckling him through the whole routine. And then he just explodes and says, 50 years ago, they'd have you hanging upside down with a blank, blankety blank, blank. Get this blank out of here. Then he repeatedly uh, uh, said, used this racial slur against this man. There were some people who laughed, but one woman can be heard on the tape gasping at his remarks. He was suffering from a guilty conscience. You know, even after YouTube had removed the incriminating video off of its platform, and even after Jerry Seinfeld came in repeatedly to go into bat for him, Richard's shame was so profound that he stopped doing stand-up comedy. And so some years later, uh, Jerry Seinfeld made another attempt to uh, redeem him by inviting him onto his show. Have you ever watched Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? Uh, it's a Netflix show. And, and Seinfeld, in another attempt, years later, to redeem him, invited him onto the show. And, and he drives around in a beat-up VW and, and picks him up and they go and get a coffee together. And they sit down and you can still feel Richard's shame as he set, tells Seinfeld... I busted up after that event seven years ago. It broke me down. And Seinfeld tries to encourage him to let it go. Well, that's up to you to say, I've been carrying this around long enough and now I'm going to put it down. But Richards can't do it because sin is too sticky. He just says, yeah, yeah. You see, Richards can't put down his sin because he knows deep down that he needs forgiveness. He instinctively realised that even Seinfeld, with all of his fame and his fortune, with all of his goodwill, Seinfeld can't declare him innocent. The fact is that you can't just forgive yourself because you've sinned against a holy God. Only God can forgive. Only God can declare us to be innocent. Only God is able to cleanse us and wash us. Only the blood of Christ 
is able to satisfy the insatiable guilt of a guilty conscience. Only the blood of Christ can do that. How many people are here this morning and are suffering from a guilty conscience? Did you know that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, including a guilty conscience? You know, when I came to that realisation, it was the most amazing experience. The weight of the world being carried off my shoulders. And that brings us back to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Remember, he, he points the finger. He says, you're guilty. You killed the Son of God. You have innocent blood on your hands. You're under condemnation and you're deserving of death. The crowd was so shaken by Peter's words. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Repent, Peter said, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And get this next bit. The promise is for you and for your children. Can you remember what that same crowd and those same leaders said? His blood be upon us and on our children. And what did Jesus, our great high priest, say from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They were guilty of the blood of Jesus, just like you and I are guilty every time we sin. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus there as we sing so often. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So what shall we do then? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing.